Romans chapter 9 is where we're turning. Romans chapter 9, hopefully you had your finger there from when I mentioned it before. A little bit of background in case uh, you think to yourself, wow, they just love really hard, edgy passages of the Bible. I showed up on a Sunday and they just randomly picked Romans 9. And to that charge, I would say, no, we did not randomly pick this section of Scripture. We began teaching through and thinking about the book of Romans together a number of months ago, and we have gloried in it. It is God's Word, true and trustworthy. It has inspired in us confidence that God is for us and He's with us, that nothing could ever separate us. We've seen the nature of our sin and then found that God has made wonderful provision in giving us Jesus, that though we deserve the wages of our sin was death, that we've been given this free gift of eternal life in Christ. We've seen what it looks like to be sanctified over the course of time. And now in the last couple of chapters, we've begun seeing a little bit behind the scenes. An illustration that I thought was helpful at one point is uh, someone said that when it comes to salvation, all of us experience it in real time. We enter the gate of heaven, and above the gate are our responsibilities, the things that we must do. It says, repent and believe, and enter into the joy of your Lord. And you enter in. And that's what we gloried in for a number of chapters at the beginning of Romans. And now Paul has been teaching us and showing us to be more grateful for the sovereignty of God because in the same illustration, we enter in, repent and believe, that as we enter into glory and live and move and realize that we're really not worth it or we haven't earned any of this, we turn around and we see that the back of the gate says salvation is of the Lord. And it indicates that He had been working all along and that He is in many ways undergirding. He's behind what has been taking place. So we really must come, repent, and believe, and we really must come to appreciate and understand that this is not our doing. And that's what's been taking place. For many people, there's a tension in that, an understandable real tension. How is it that God can be totally sovereign, and yet we are not just puppets being thrown around? And yet the Bible holds both of these things and invites us to consider them together, not to lessen one, not to pit them against one another. As Brian said a number of weeks ago, not to create contrast where Scripture has unity, but instead to do what is ours to do, to repent and believe, to joyfully proclaim, and then also to give God proper glory for the mercy that He gives on no one, no deserving person but instead He gives it out freely. That's the place that we are. So if I mentioned Romans 9 and edginess and some, some sharp edges, that's what's being contemplated. And what we're going to do now is beginning in verse 19, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, and here's what we're looking for. Verse 19 and verse 30, Paul gives us two more questions. That's how he's guided us. He's been a guide through this passage by questions. He's going to give us two more questions. So we're going to see two questions, and then I think there's three responses. Two questions and then three responses that make up how he deals with these. So we're looking for two and three. I'm going to read this, then I'll pray for us. Starting in verse 19 of Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, 
has endured with much patience wrestles of wrath, it's hard to say, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's take a moment and pray that we'd understand these things. Father, in the most honest way we can say it, we are not bright enough, spiritual enough, with it enough to understand all of your ways. We long for the day when we will see fully, perfectly, with clarity. And we thank you for how you've spoken. You have made things clear, things concerning Jesus and his perfect life for us, his death as a substitute, his resurrection, the hope of that that it brings. You have been clear. But we also confess that there are mysteries in you. You're beyond us in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. And I pray now that as we consider these texts that you would give us open eyes to see, ears to hear, maybe more than that, God, give us open hands to lay at your feet the tensions that we feel, the things that we won't know. And we ask you, please, to do this in us because you are a good Father who gives good gifts, namely the Spirit to those who ask. So, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Two questions that Paul gives us. First, he says, you're going to say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, if God is so sovereign that he gives mercy on whoever he wants, and then he withholds mercy and allows this hardening or hardens the heart of some, that God is totally free to do that. And so he anticipates the question, well, you're going to say then, well, how can he still find fault? I mean, who can resist him? That's question number one. And then second, in verse 30, he's going to say, okay, well, then what do we say to these things? It's a summary statement as we're wrapping up the chapter. And it's those two questions that we are going to consider this morning. 
Who can resist his will? And how does he find fault? And then second, what do we summarize? What do we say to these things? And I believe that there's three responses to this that Paul gives. Three responses. The first, he responds to the questions with a question. This is a time-tested Jesus kind of thing to do. It's a wonderful way to respond to things. He responds with, to the questions with a question, and I believe it's a question of perspective or posture. That's the first response. The second response we're going to look at and consider together is what I would call a, a tempered assertion. He makes an assertion, but it's tempered, and I think there's good reason for it to be tempered. And then finally, he's going to invite us. There's an invitation that comes. So we have response to questions with a question, a tempered assertion, and then we're going to see that he gives us an invitation. The first response is a response of a question, essentially says, who are you, O man? And then he gives an illustration concerning art or sculpting. And I want to make a confession to you this morning, something that I don't often say publicly, and that is, is that I am a terrible artist. I don't know if any of you are like me and you felt the pain of art class when you were a kid. It seemed unfair because I wanted to do super well. I always wanted an A, always wanted the best, always was comparing. You could call that pride, and it was. But I felt it unfair oftentimes in art class because I would get a lot of points off just because I was bad at it, or at least that's what it felt. The teacher, I could just tell, probably had to go into the back of the break room and laugh when she saw what I'd made. I just was never good at art. But just because I was not good at art didn't mean that I could not appreciate wonderful art. And that is why I spent countless hours as a child partaking of the, some of the best art ever produced in the world by one Bob Ross. I would park myself in front of the television screen and I would delight in Mr. Ross. You see, Mr. Ross was the artist. He had full control of the canvas, full control of the colors, full control of the brush. And one of the delights of tuning into one of these shows is that you had no idea what kind of wild ride you were going to go on that day. It was impossible to reach through into the mind of the artist and figure out where are we going. So for a while, it just seemed chaotic. And somehow in his very calming voice, he would just create chaos on the canvas. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to draw a big line right here, throw some of this here, and it just looked splotchy. And so emotionally, you were just kind of in wonder and waiting, and you just felt lost. But then some little moments of clarity would come. You see, it was an emotional roller coaster. There would be the, the, you remember the moment when the artist is working and you say to yourself, I see it. I see what he's doing. Them theirs is some mountains, right? Remember this? Oh, that blue splotchy line is a river. The river is running across the center of the canvas. And you in that moment felt united to the mind of Bob Ross because he was letting you into his plan and you were a part of it. You began to make guesses. Oh, I bet this river, it's not just going to be any old river. This is going to be a bubbling brook full of little critters here and there, right? You're saying, I can see his plan coming together. I know you're anticipating. But then the emotional roller coaster would continue because Bob Ross, in all of his audacity and boldness, would every once in a while take something that you perfectly understood, a batch of rocks that created the bubbling brook at the bottom, something that you delighted in, that he had taken time to form, 
Every once in a while, he would do the unthinkable. He would take a big splotch of brown paint and he would just go, and I was personally offended. I thought, that's so much uglier than what was there before. How could you change or mar the thing that I saw so clearly? And I would have to patiently wait, a little bit indignant, as the mind of the artist began to shape and form what became a wonderful, from perspective, zoomed out little batch of trees. And as these trees came into formation, and I began to say, wow, it turns out that the color of the rock really just became a a wonderful foundation for this multi-layered den of trees that wouldn't have been there before. This is even more beautiful than what was there previously. And as he talked to you, he said, oh, yeah, you can just imagine a little family of bunnies living right in there. And it was in those moments when the emotional roller coaster took me to a place of shame. And I thought to myself, All those moments when I dared to critique the mind and the goodness of the artist, I felt offended for the poor rocks that had been covered over, and the whole time Mr. Ross was simply in the good pleasure of his mind's eye creating a den of beauty and substance and safety and security for otherwise homeless rabbits. You see, there was a separation, not only in skill, because I'm terrible, but there was a separation through a television screen. There's a separation because I'm not, a, I'm not inside Bob Ross's brain. And more than that, there was a separation in my understanding of his right over the canvas. So where are we going with this illustration? I want you to imagine in this world that following the TV show, imagine the lights go off, the thing goes down, Lance runs off to eat some Flintstones vitamins or whatever he he did. And there's a knocking on Bob Ross's door. And there at the door, when he opens it, is a line of complaints. And there at the door is the previously unaltered set of bubbling brook rocks. And they're there and they say, "Uh, I just have a question or two. You see, you took the time to form us. You even gave us some little highlights because the sun was shimmering in there, whatever it was. Uh, And we were front and center. And I actually think we were perfectly fine. And our plan for ourselves included something vastly different than becoming the background medium for a den of rabbits. So we have many questions for you. First of all, how dare you? Now imagine this exchange. And you might say to yourself, that's absurd. What should Bob Ross say? Well, He might not even need to answer for himself. If you were observing this, you would run in and you would protect Mr. Ross and you'd say, okay, let let me just just lay down a couple things here for you. Okay, first of all, rocks. Who told you you were rocks? Did you name yourselves? Secondarily, rocks. Where were you before Mr. Ross brought you into the center of the canvas and gave you some highlights? Where, Where were you? 
More than that, actually, now that I come to think about its set of rocks, where did you get the canvas on which to exist? And then, just because I'm really digging in now, I'm on a roll. Can you tell I'm on a roll? Furthermore, said rocks, did you buy the paint? Are you able, in your mind's eye, to come up with this scenery and artwork? And finally, said set of rocks, the purpose that you served in upholding an honorable den of bunnies, do you begrudge the kindness of the artist in giving these bunnies a home? Why do you hate rabbits? Set of rocks. You see, this exchange is a way in all of its ridiculousness to drive home a particular point that can often get muddled. And that is that things created can forget the distance that still exists between them and the Creator. And Paul's response, not using a Bob Ross painting, but sculpting and molding, Paul's response is essentially to move in and to say, look, I understand your question. I understand the question that right now, in all of the myriad of possibilities of what could take place, and you have experienced suffering, or you know people who have been lost, I know too, I am aching in an unceasing way from my heart about my kinsmen who are lost. I know what you're experiencing, and even though that tension will remain, we're never going to get into the mind of God. I want you to know that there is a certain line of accusation that just is inappropriate here. You are created, and God is creator. So the question that he responds back with is essentially to ask them again. He says, well, what right does a lump of clay have to say to the molder why or how or what? In other words, I think what Paul is saying is essentially this, remember, all that God has revealed has been mercy. He had no reason, there was nothing obligating God other than the pure, free love of Him and His being to communicate with us at all. All that we know of Him, anything that we see, anything that becomes clear is just part of His rights and His wonder and His wisdom as Creator. And when things become a little unclear, when you hit the emotional roller coaster moment of the, the brown splotch that goes over the rocks, he just says to them, look, you cannot tighten your once open hands in a trusting way to God. You cannot begin to close them and shake them in fists of accusation because ultimately, though He is your Father who loves you, we have been taught to pray, our Father who is in heaven. God is not like us, and there are some things that He simply will not tell us, and even I think if He did tell us, we couldn't understand it anyway. His ways are not our ways. He's beyond us. There are certain questions that though we will understandably experience them, we must continue to open our hands and lay them at His feet, not grasp them and say, you better tell me or else. 
That's the response that he gives. Now, you might say to yourself, I knew Romans 9 was hard. I knew it was tough. You see, I have all these legitimate questions. It does feel unfair, and I know people are lost, and suffering happens, and I knew Romans 9 was tough because Paul's all mean. He's got these sharp edges, and he insists on something here, the sovereignty of God that elsewhere is not there. I like the crocheable verses of Romans, not this. And I just want to remind you that though this is not always the instinct especially in the book of Romans, much has been explained. It is part and parcel to understanding the Bible, that all of us must remember and, and respond to the question, who is God and who are you, that this is going to be fundamental to our growth as a Christian. You will in many ways never ever grow beyond the mature response to what God is as creator and the mature response to what we are as created. It's all over Scripture. I'm going to give you a few examples. Daniel chapter 4. So Nebuchadnezzar, who was a proud and lifted up king, he thought he was God. God worked circumstances to remind him, no, 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 you're more like a clay pot than God. This is what Daniel chapter 4 says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson of the creator-creature divide, and it reset him. I'm going to give you one verse from the book of Job. And if I'm honest, I kind of want to be congratulated on my restraint of not reading the entirety of the book of Job. You know the story of Job. That Job had legitimate reason for complaint. He experienced in real time suffering. That's understandable. But what was not okay is for him to take those questions and turn them into closed fists of accusation. And so, in little moments of clarity, I'm going to give you one example. Job chapter 9, verse 12. Job declares this, and he's getting to the point that needs to be made. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Who will jump into the TV screen and say, Bob, what are you doing? And you know the end of the story of Job. I mean, legitimately, the entire book is 42 chapters of him coming to this conclusion. It's in many ways a forerunner. It's an answer to the question from, from Paul in Romans 9. The answer is, I am clay, he is potter. Isaiah chapter 45, here's another example. This lesson of the first step of understanding who God is, is to not make him a slightly better human being. You don't start with us and say, oh yeah, God is slightly better as a person. No, God is the unsourced source of all things. He provides without ever having lack. That's the place that we must start with Him. Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? 
Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I believe that Paul is borrowing heavily, as he has all through Romans from the Old Testament, and likely very clearly here from Isaiah chapter 45, quoting, does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Which also doubles as a wonderful playground basketball insult. The concept here, the idea is, is that for all human beings created by His hand, we must, we must reckon with God in this way, and we must be careful, we must be careful to not cross the line where we go from humble, wondering at mystery, or even saddened, needing redemption or healing from suffering, we must never cross the line to let those things make us be those who close fist and accuse and sit in a position of judging God and His works. And so Paul says that we're about to hit a stopping point. There are many things that the Lord has revealed Many things. Those are for the delight of His children. Many things that we proclaim to you. I, in a full-throated way, proclaim to you this morning that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven of your sins. We can spend a long time on these things that He has revealed. And I believe that as He's carefully walking us through, there's going to be certain feelings, certain tensions, certain mysteries that Paul's going to say, okay, right about here is where the tour stops. We don't know. We don't get to know. We're not God. That's why the tour is stopping where it's stopping. It's why he begins to not answer or defend the question. He recognizes that I think we're all going to feel this. We all going to know this is a temptation, but he's going to say, okay, look, here's what we should do and remember here. There's a certain danger. The danger is not that you're not going to have answers to your questions. The danger is you're going to position yourself wrongly in relation to God. Do you see that danger? You might think the worst danger is you don't have a good answer to your questions. And Paul says, no, I see a greater danger that if you insist on getting an answer to this question, you're going to be positioned wrongly in relationship to God. It's a much bigger problem. I think a summary statement would be to say something like this. Though we will understandably have questions about the suffering of ourselves or others. Though Israel had questions about how is it that we were, take, we were brought this far as God's chosen people and now it seems like we're lost and we have a veil over our eyes. Though you will have understandable questions, in the moment of your evangelizing, you're going to want to know, okay, am I wasting my time, God? Is this going to be a mercy withheld situation or what's happening? I know that we're going to want those answers. That's understandable. But the reality is, is that faith in God means that we accept His answer, which is essentially, you don't get to know all that. And I think I can think of a few different reasons. Uh, one, you're not wise enough. Two, you're not good enough. And I mean that in the 
in both the moral and the competency sense. And then three, it would break your brain. Think about what we're asking. There's certain levels of questions that I think we just get to the heart of God where He just says, okay, now you're asking me to unfold me into you. And it's like a, it's like a Moses situation. Show me your glory. And God's like, uh, it would kill you. So the answer to the question, how do you still find fault? Who can resist his will? Notice what he doesn't do. I get the temptation. I'm having to teach this stuff. Notice what he doesn't do. Paul doesn't say, now you're going to ask me, why does he still find fault or who can resist his will? What he doesn't do is say, oh, no, no, you got it all wrong. You can totally resist his will. That would have solved it. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 you don't get it. No, 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 no one's going to be judged. There's going to be no fault. It turns out in Jesus, everybody just gets in. But Paul is being moved by the Spirit, and he knows that he is not free to change things in those ways. There's a temptation. There's a temptation to get out the best sandpaper we can find and try to rough off all of these sharp edges. But if we do so, I think we've missed the point. That this is going to be one of the lifelong, deep, I need to let God be God and I don't get to know moments of life. This is what keeps clay pots clay pots. And that's why he, uh, he answers the question with a question. Now, that's not all he says. That's not all he says. I told you there was another response. And another response to this question is what I called a tempered assertion. So secondary to the question, to remind them who they are and who God is, he also gives a tempered assertion. Now here's what I mean by that. It's tempered in the sense that in verse 22, did you note the language that Paul uses? I'll just use an example. If you go back to, say, verse 14, for instance, at the end of verse 14, he's using phrases like, by no means. There's been many things that have moved Paul to give some exclamation points as many obnoxious emojis as possible to make a, a very strong stance on something. But that's not where he goes here. He's tempered. He's careful. And he says, what if? What if? I believe there's something in Paul here that knows that he's treading. He's treading on God's plans for his own glory in a way that he just is not quite sure. What if, he says, what if, and he says, what if this mystery, this tension that we don't get to know fully of the mercy and the hardening of God, what if it's going to end up in God's glory in a way that we can't imagine? In other words, I think what he says is, what if, what if, just bear with me now, what if God is an artist in such a way that homeless rabbits are going to live here, and I don't know, and you're going to say to me, that's impossible. How could withholding mercy or the idea of hardening, how could that possibly lead to somewhere good? And Paul would say, I don't know if you know our God. Because what if God, I love that that's the next word, and that's a great place to leave all of your questions. What if God? And I could really go on a wonderful self-help rant right now. All your problems in life, have you asked the question, what if God? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what a great phrase. Anyway, what if God? And Paul says, what if, here's a possible purpose in all of this, he says, what if 
God was not willing to show mercy in the exact same way to everyone for a couple of reasons. One, it ceases or it dumbs down mercy in a particular way. What if God sees a path toward the glorifying of His love and mercy wherein giving His love and mercy out to everyone makes it less love and mercy? Does that make sense? What if what God is doing in the midst of this is highlighting a certain aspect of who He is in His glory in a way that we can't quite see? What if? Then more than that, He goes on and He says, and what if, though God has been patient with everyone who deserves to be lost forever, what if in His patience God desired to show His wrath? and make known His power. What if He desired, what a phrase, what if desiring to make His wrath known, or to make His power known, and to show His wrath? In other words, Paul ventures to say this, what if there's some aspect of God, essentially His perfect justice, His ineffable holiness, His character that's completely and utterly unassailable, what if God is so just that He's going to receive unbelievable amounts of glory in bringing perfect wrath against sin. And could it be? Do you allow for the fact that it could be that at the end of all things we'll look back and we'll see that God was wise and He was right and He was glorious even in the way that He meted out mercy or withheld mercy? What if? What if there's some aspect of His character and His ways that will be on display? What if His power will be made known in a particular way by the righting of wrongs in wrath? What if? There's an instinct of this, right? When justice has been duly processed, when a verdict comes at just the right moment and the right amount, in full wisdom where there's, there's tears of relief even. And Paul ventures to say, what if in heaven we'll look back and some of what we'll glory in is God's perfection in His doling out of justice and His offering of mercy? What if the contrast of those two things, and I think only a contrast in our human minds is what makes them beautiful. Now, this is a tempered assertion. What if, he says. Paul's not pretending to know the exact ingredients. He's not saying, I know the recipe for KFC chicken or whatever it is. He's not saying, I have secret knowledge. I'm just giving you a little taste. I think Paul legitimately enters into where we are as the reader and says, I mean, what if? I think there's a second purpose for that. Not only do I believe that that's the case, that God's glory will be fully on display eternally because He's committed to His glory in a way that we cannot imagine, but more than that, I think there's a purpose that this, this response, this tempered assertion, sir, assertion serves. <laughs> Too many S words. And that is this question. For many of us, reading about God in this way, being put in place as, as clay pot, especially if we've been through paths of suffering, especially if there are things we just don't understand, especially if we have a heart for people and souls that we interact with, 
it is possible that many of us are afraid of passages of the Bible like this because we don't know how to answer what if. And I think that Paul wants to press us on this. What if God is this free? I've heard people say things before like, if God is like that, I don't want to imagine Him or I don't want to worship Him. And usually the response is, wow, that's scary because God is. I had a friend one time, we were doing missionary work together. And we were in uh, pretty humble circumstances in Hong Kong. We're doing a Bible study and we're talking through how Jesus calls those who would be the greatest to be the greatest servants, to live in a lowly way, to expect persecution, that those who follow and serve the Son of Man don't even have a place to lay their heads. And this young man, who had come from a family who had a lot, and he liked to have a lot, and I have to believe had somewhere along the way attached himself to a kind of gospel that was skewed in some ways, listened to this whole conversation, and then chimed in, and as boldly as I can ever imagine someone saying something boldly, said, you know what, I just got to tell you, I don't know about you guys, but if this is true, if this really is what it is, if my life is going to be, you know, poor or has difficulty or if I'm going to be persecuted for this kind of stuff, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. I don't, th- I don't think this is worth that. And two things happened simultaneously. First, I wanted to back away slowly because I could feel the lightning gathering in the sky. It's like, I, I don't want to be here for that. And then secondarily, my heart broke. My heart broke because somewhere in the calculation for this young man, what Jesus offered him, or maybe more than that, what he thought he needed was negotiable. He thought he was in a position of power. He thought that what God was offering to him was a smorgasbord of life choices and that whatever he wanted to do, sort of a choose-your-own-adventure, and I'll just be back here, and I'll just chime in if you need me, And he had decided that that path was not for him. I think there's a little bit of that here. I think people legitimately sometimes fear, I don't want to deal with the sovereignty of God and salvation because what if God X, Y, Z, and they're afraid of what that might mean. They think to themselves, can I worship still? Can I evangelize still? Can I pray still? And I want to encourage you and say two things. First, God is. And you will never, ever, ever be disappointed by living a life where you give honor to your Creator as a created one. There's no alternate life of greater joy. See, that's the lie that the kid thought. He thought there was an alternate life of greater joy if he rejected Jesus and the path of suffering. So God is... There's nowhere else to turn. That's the first response to what if, and if you're fearful of these things. And secondarily, I want you to know that the idea that somehow you would not be able to pray or evangelize anymore, Paul does not share that fear because he goes by the end of Romans 9, which we're going to see in a second, and then all the way into Romans 10, he glories in evangelism. So therefore, he says, everyone who confesses the name of Jesus and bows their knee, they will be saved. So though I understand that fear, it is not supported by the Bible. We can, 
and not only can, but we must let God be God when it comes to salvation, and we should joyfully embrace what He's shown us clearly, which is that we call out to everyone to be saved, and we must repent and believe. So the last response, it's this next question. He says in verse 30, what shall we say then? And the last response is an invitation. He goes back to the question of Israel. How is it that Israel was the chosen people? How is it that they're now lost? What's going on? And he goes back to them, and he describes this stumbling block. It's interesting. He calls Jesus a stumbling block, and that they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. He even quotes from the Old Testament that he's laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. But the interesting thing is this rock of offense for those who see, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those who know their need of mercy, that same stumbling block and rock of offense is a cornerstone. And what Paul says as he ends the chapter is, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Somewhere in Paul's thinking, he can talk through and say, look, God's free to give mercy however He wants. There's this thing called the elect, and I don't know what to do with it exactly, except that it's real, and God's going to do this. At the end of all things, he will have, be, have, he'll have prerogative over it. And somehow that doesn't stop him at all from quoting a passage that says, you know how many people will never be put to shame? Whoever believes. Whoever believes. So the response to teaching on election is not to go out into all the world and proclaim election. There's a lot of people who nerd out to that level. The response to God's sovereignty and salvation is to go out into all the world and say, whoever believes and whoever sees that Jesus is not a stumbling block and an offense, but a cornerstone, and He's the only safe place to build a life upon, whoever believes will never be put to shame. As we wrap up these verses in Romans chapter 9, I want to take some time and pray. I want to pray for us. You see, I don't know where your emphasis lies. I don't know if you track right along. I don't know if you are going to leave here this morning and you're going to say to yourself, boy, that Lance, he sure is a wimp when it comes to God's glory. He should have told us we're all worse than than we are, whatever. You know, I don't know. I don't know how. Or I don't know if you're going to leave here and you're going to say, I cannot believe that someone would say that out loud. What a misrepresentation. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where the tensions lie. But I believe that this has been given for our instruction. It's profitable. That the Word of God is true without error. It is the only place to build a life upon. And so, in these things, we can trust God. We can take all the tensions, all the mysteries, the things we don't know, and we can unfist our hands and trust Him. Let's pray. God, I ask that we would see You more clearly, see You as You are. Keep us from the temptation of lining up like rocks at the artist's door. I confess to You this morning that I I am not you. I confess to you that I have questions and tensions, things that I won't be able to answer, and it has a potential to bother me, but God, I pray you'd keep me from 
blasphemy. Keep me from shaking my fist at you. God, I thank you that whoever believes will never be put to shame. Give us courage to gather up the things that we don't know that still seem kind of dark and to entrust them to you. And at the same time, take what you've proclaimed in the light, things we know for sure, and to be bold with them. Thank you, God, that before the foundation of the world, you have gathered a people that when you say will, they will come, they shall come, that they will in fact come. Thank you that our evangelism has teeth. We thank you that we can pray to you because you can change hearts. You love to give mercy. You love to save. And so, God, we ask for faith. Faith to believe you, faith to see you, and faith to delight in your welcome of us. Thank you for mercy. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.